0: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 277 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Transforming Medicine, an interview with Dr. Jessica Pietros. My name is Richard Johansson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Folks, Dr. Jess has become known as the star infotainer in the Lyme disease community. She's this really smart doctor who understands the Lyme journey. She creates creative skits, which she uses to teach very complex topics. She has this expressive face and this ability to interpret and portray very important Lyme disease concepts for us in the community. And all of this is the product of a transformation that occurred when she was 17 years old, got involved in an automobile accident, suffered physical and emotional trauma, which brought her to medical school, to becoming a hospitalist, and ultimately to be transformed into a new type of doctor.
1: And Rich, today, Dr. Jess is now transforming the lives of Lyme and tick-borne disease patients. She's using things she's researched, like the Gerson therapy model, neutrogenomics, and ozone to help people overcome the hurdles of tick-borne illness. She even gives us specific tips and warnings to look at when treating Lyme disease. So folks,
0: without further ado, we are really excited to introduce to you, Dr. Jess. Hello, Dr. Jess, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast.
2: Thank you so much, I'm really honored to be here.
0: Well, we're honored to have you, and you are someone that we've been targeting for this podcast for a long time for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and I think the thing that we enjoy most about your content and we are people who follow your uh, your Instagram page is that you're probably the best infotainment professional in uh, the uh, at least Lyme disease space that's our perspective and and one of the things I said to Matt recently was if I was going to build an avatar for someone who is going to provide information in the um, in the Instagram arena it would be you you really do sort of have all of the traits that I think we would want in someone who could provide the kind of information people in this community need in in a digestible form right I mean you are a medical doctor right uh, clearly a very smart human being uh, you are um, you have you are very well aware of uh, Lyme disease and the Lyme disease journey you're really creative with these skits that you put together I mean I just I don't know how, I don't know what's going on. There's a party going on in that mind. I mean, how you can have all of these little skits are just beyond, you know, what I could, I could ever envision. Um, you make a really nice appearance, clearly a genetically gifted person. You have a really expressive face. That's the thing that I think is how you teach with your face is just just wild. And then of course, you know, the way you portray and interpret characters as part of this infotainment that you use And teaching these really dense concepts is really powerful. So talk to us about, you know, this sort of avatar that you've become in the infotainment element of uh, Lyme disease.
2: First of all, you know how to make a girl feel good. Gosh, thank you so much. So I, I guess it's, you know, naturally, I don't have the personality type of, of a doctor. Um, we did the Myers-Briggs personality test in medical school I w- as my intern, my first year in residency. And I was one of two people who had the ENFP personality type, introverted, intuitive, feeling, perceptive, which means I'm, I'm an entertainer. I was supposed to be a politician or an
0: actress. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about this journey to medical school and ultimately where you are, because it is interesting that, you know, the personality tests are are also suggesting that you are the avatar for, you know, infotainment in this sort of medical space. So I I think that's really interesting that you had that personality. But talk to us about, you know, your childhood where you grew up and what was it like to be Uh, you know, young Jess before she became Dr. Jess?
2: I was a pretty inquisitive child. According to my parents, I'm the oldest. And I was born in West Virginia, in in Huntington, West Virginia, actually a suburb. So I was born down a dirt road, had a bunch of grass and green trees and woods to play in, ticks paradise, right? (laughs) And um, my dad was a preacher and a missionary. So I was really sheltered growing up. I had you know, puppies, rainbows, Bibles in my childhood, and never heard anyone cuss. And my mom was a dietitian, So she made us pretty healthy food back then, you know, I snacked on fruit and things. And, um, but you know, she still believed in the food pyramid. So I wasn't, it wasn't like my family knew everything, right. Um, and I really feel like that sort of sheltered religious upbringing gave me the basis for wanting to really help. People and really be sort of. You know, we growing up, my parents, we would take Christmas gifts on Christmas to to homeless families. And so I really learned to have a big heart and really want to help people just out of the goodness of my heart, because that's the way I was raised from birth. And um, so I'm a little country girl at heart, really. And um, so being the oldest, I felt this really big responsibility to help the world be a better place.
0: So you were, you were given a very strong foundation, a, a strong service foundation, right? You learned from your parents that God created you to serve, not to be served, but to serve, right? And that's what you were doing from the earliest stages in your life. And that ultimately took you to medical school. But before we talk about your, your trip to medical school, talk to us about what happened to you when you were 17 years old and what impact that had on your
2: development. Yeah, that was a big deal for me, Um, you know, and it was not just a physical trauma, it was actually an emotional trauma, and it was a big turning point in my life, and I would like to highlight the story to show people that it was one of the worst things at the time that ever happened in my short life, but because of what happened, it set me on a trajectory that I wouldn't have been on before, and so I have to, this is one of the reasons that the Bible says to thank God for trials and tribulations, and this is one example of this. So when I was 17, I was involved in a pretty severe car accident. I was coming back from a Marshall University football game in Huntington, West Virginia, with two of my friends from high school and a guy, a guy from a neighboring high school who was driving. And I had pretty strict parents, so I said, speed up to get me home on time. Um, we were on kind of backwoods country roads in West Virginia. So at 80 miles per hour, there was not much of a chance The passenger wheel, the front passenger wheel, I remember, I'll never forget, kind of fell off the road and he overcompensated. Um, And the the car hit the hillside, rolled across the road, down an embankment, hit a telephone pole. Um, I probably had a traumatic brain injury from it because I, I remember coming to, and the ceiling of the car was kind of right here. I had to abduct. It was right up above my head and crushed. And there was blood on my arm and glass. And I crawled out of the car window because the door wouldn't open. The alarm was going off. It was a lot of commotion. And I remember thinking, gosh, my back hurts. It feels like the wind had been knocked out of me because the adrenaline was going, right? And um, it turns out that one girl was paralyzed from the waist down. I had a broken back. The driver had a broken back and some torn um, ligaments and things in his legs. And um, the other girl had a broken back. Because of the the rolling of the car, and um, I was well the only one who didn't have to have surgery. Everyone had to have surgery, but me. Um, I was the least hurt, but because I had told him to speed up to get me home on time, I kind of became the scapegoat for that accident because of the parents that were involved and we were young children. All these things, um, and I wore a back brace for three months. Um, never couldn't take it off unless I was in laying down. I had to wear it in the shower even, um, and. I was injured too. And because of the backlash from what happened from the accident, I ended up transferring high schools because of it. Um, so it was a big deal for me mentally and emotionally. I got blamed for a lot of things and it was, it, it kind of let me see how kind the doctor was. He was, he was a neurosurgeon who was very kind to all of us and he saved some of my friends. And so I really that influenced me to want to help people that way and make that big of an impression on people's lives and
0: health. So talk to us about sort of the parallel trauma that you had to deal with there and how that became formative in your future, right? So you you had the traumatic experience of being physically injured and having friends physically injured, but you also had the emotional trauma of watching friends who were suffering from injuries. And then on top of that, you had the emotional trauma of being blamed for an accident right? So talk about how the the physical and emotional trauma affected you and how that became formative in your experience.
2: Yeah, I actually think I stuffed a lot of that emotion in my body. I I really suppressed a lot because at my young age, you know, 17, I was transferring high schools and not only, I was more worried about the emotional and social aspects of things than I was even my back at that point in time. The other stuff was more overwhelming for me, if you will, um, just because I was worried about people being upset at me or making new friends in a new place. Um, And really, because of that accident, I transferred schools. And had I not transferred schools, I probably wouldn't have ended up in, in Louisville, Kentucky, where I went to ended up going to medical school and residency. So because of that transfer to high school, I ended up moving to Louisville, Kentucky, with a guy, of course, that had me move at the time, but I would have never met him had I not moved and transferred schools. And so um, I really think that that set in motion, um, my, not only my career, but where I was supposed to be living at the time and learning.
0: So before we go on to the medical school experience, and I am really interested in, in unpacking that with you, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about ticks and tick diseases during your uh, childhood country road experience right I mean I sort of have this song in my head about you know uh, about what it would be like to live in West Virginia. so um, uh, you you did you did uh, tease a little bit that this was tick country or it was certainly a place where ticks would would um, would, would thrive. Um, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood?
2: Not a lot, actually. I mean, I don't remember finding a whole bunch on me. There was occasionally we'd find some on the dogs or on us, but um, I'm one of those people that can be walking in a forest and the person next to me has 12 ticks crawling on them and I have none. So there's something about pheromones, blood type, whatever it is with me that they don't like me very well. Um, And I'll tell you, I have when I did my genetics, I was now, now Mark knows how to kill me because they bought 23 in me, but you know, back then when I did that, that DNA testing, they said you're on the front page, you're a warrior genotype, which means that I don't, I'm kind of a tank. I don't feel anything. I'm never sick. I never feel bad. And because I know my genetics, it, I think there's something having to do with ticks not liking me then. And I'll be honest with you guys, ticks were as prevalent back then as they are now they were not in West Virginia like they are now. I don't think they were anywhere like they are now. I don't remember them being as big a problem back when I was a kid. I don't know about you guys.
0: You know, I mean, here on Long Island, I can tell you, obviously I'm quite a bit older than you, Dr. Jess. And I can tell you during my childhood, ticks were a huge issue. Uh, Yeah, we, we actually had uh, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is we had a, what we call now the janky tick kit that was uh, actually on the shelf as you'd walk into my parents' side door. We had so many ticks on us and our, and our companion animals had so many ticks on them that every day when you'd walk in, you would check yourself and there would be uh, Vaseline, which we know you shouldn't be using, tweezers, uh, there, would be, there would be matches, not to burn the tick off. We didn't do that, but we would always burn the tick because we were told the only way you can kill a tick is by burning it. So we would, we would, we would put it in a napkin and we would burn the napkin. So this was, ticks were a huge part of my childhood going back, quite frankly, to the late 60s and early 70s. Wow.
2: Yeah, yeah I don't think they were in West Virginia back then. You know, I think their territory is broadened for whatever reason, um, you know, and I think that I just, I don't think they were a problem back then that
0: was where I was growing up. So now let's talk about medical school. So you finally make this path to medical school. So you've you've overcome the physical injuries that had you in a back brace for a long period of time. Uh you you feel called to now um serve in this medical community because of this experience that you had with um with this auto accident. And um and you now go to medical school. So were, were, were your physical injuries resolved by the time you went to medical school and were your, uh, had you dealt with, or even were you aware of the emotional injuries that you were harboring from that period of your life?
2: You know, no, I didn't understand back then how much trauma impacted physical health or stored in the body. I didn't even, it wasn't even like a blip on my radar. Um, but yeah, I had definitely physically healed. Um, In fact, like I can remember the back brace being more than annoying, probably a month in because I already felt better. Um, And in medical school was really when I got into exercising on a daily basis, I almost became obsessed with it. It was sort of my sanity and, you know, pressure valve release throughout medical school. So by the time I was in college, um, I was really, you know, working out a little bit more, not like in medical school, but had really healed from that injury and it never it never bothered me because I built up mus- muscles around my back, which helped to support. I think a little bit more.
0: All right, so you're now in this rigorous um, educational experience where you're becoming an allopathic doctor. Right, you're studying to become a medical doctor, um, and uh, that is a, a an emotionally and socially and physically challenging environment. You just share with us that you began to exercise, so you were dealing with you were dealing with a lot of those stresses through exercise. Um, where were you emotionally? Right. I mean, you, you were you were in a very emotionally toxic environment when you had to leave your community and go to school somewhere else. Had you dealt with that, that emotional trauma before you went to law school, um, law school, medical school?
2: You know, yeah, from I don't think I had. Obviously, I think that this trauma showed up in parts of my body later on. Um And I can tell you, I actually later, I think that trauma was actually stored in my left hip, based on some energetic work I've done and some work with practitioners that have enlightened me a little bit. Um, But in medical school, you know, yeah, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done, looking back on it. But you know, when you're in hell, you don't really know you're in hell, right? Till later, in hindsight, it's twenty twenty, so it's kind of one of those things. Back then, I thought I was doing something really big and, you know, really helping to change the world and help, you know, I'm the oldest, so I'm very driven as well. I like to be the best, you know, and do my best. And so it was sort of my path. But, you know, I did get burnt out without recognizing it in medical school. I have a lot of energy and so I can handle a lot. And I didn't I didn't see how. Um, medical school really stressed me out and aged me and pained me in flight or fight. So I was a bit imbalanced after medical school and residency, especially because I went through an internal medicine residency. And um that meant I was on call a lot and the ER called me a lot. And even after residency, I chose to become a hospitalist. So they were paging me a lot, on call a lot. And when when you're a first responder, you're kind of a phone rings and you jump, right? An alarm goes off and you jump because you've been trained to respond to codes and emergencies. And that keeps you in that fight or fight position, which going through school and that started to happen to me, I didn't recognize how detrimental that is to our bodies and our subtle health back then. I didn't have, I wasn't conscious enough to understand the subtleties of health.
1: Okay.
0: So let's, let's talk about that from the, the fight or flight, um, fight or flight element of your, your medical school and your post-medical school experience. Did you even know what fight or flight was at that time?
2: Yeah, you know, they taught us a little bit about the autonomic nervous system, not anything like I think that education needs to be um, based around, but they did teach us about, you know, the different sides of that with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Um, And we even learned things like, you know, the sphincter of Odi has to open and release bile only when you're in rest and digest or in parasympathetic nervous system. So I knew there was some like actual scientific basis for wanting to be balanced in both systems, But here's the problem, and here's the problem with most people, is that you can't see yourself. You can't see yourself. I didn't know I was imbalanced. Other people looked at me and thought, does she ever take a breath when she talks, right? I still err on that side a little bit, but you should have seen me back then. (laughs) So, you know, you can't see yourself, right? And so that was the problem. It was insidiously and slowly happening to me, this energy. But it's so slow, and it's so hard to see yourself, especially when you're younger, All those things combined, it was a perfect storm.
0: So when you were taught about the fight or flight process in medical school, were you taught how to manage it? Were you taught how it could serve you or how it could hurt you and what you could do to be a healthy person going through medical school, going through your internship and ultimately as as a hospitalist?
2: Oh, are you joking, Rich? No, um, absolutely not. It was a ba- it was a badge of honor. And people, you know, you were looked upon, you know, it wasn't sad. It was an unsaid energy of, and, you know, nonverbal communication with people. But you were looked at as weaker, you know, if you couldn't get it together and, you know, we're weren't able to, you know, finish a shift because if you couldn't deal, someone else that was on call had to come in for you, one of your peers, right? So it was this pressurized system all the time. And really, if you go, go, go and didn't show any weakness, that was seen by your attendings and your superiors as a sign of strength. And um, you might get resident of the month if you were overworking and you are know, coming in early and staying late. There was no discussion of if this was health. Everyone did this, so it was kind of like a fraternity with hazing, right?
0: Well, also it's a, also part of this uh, suck it up culture, right? I mean, we see this presenting itself over and over again on this podcast, where uh, you know young children are are brought through a culture where they're told to suck it up. And because you're told to suck it up, you lose touch with your body signals. And because you're losing touch with your body signals, you ultimately don't even know when you're sick and when you're not sick. And you don't have a tool to measure whether or not you're improving. Right. So
2: it's so many things and not just that, but this is the root cause basis for why so many doctors are unhappy and they seem to be unkind or condescending to patients. It comes from a root cause victimhood where they're overworked and unhappy, right? And victims become perpetrators.
0: So, you know, Matt used the metaphor yesterday when we were interviewing a guest of uh, the, he actually called it the frog, but I think really what he meant was, was, uh, was the lobster in the, in the pot, right? And, and what's happening is you're now in this environment where the heat is going up and the, and the temperature of the water is getting hotter, but you don't feel it and it's getting hotter, and it's getting hotter, and it's getting hotter. And not only can't you see yourself because you're in the pot, you can't even feel the heat and the temperature that's getting to a point where you're being brought to a boil, right? So talk to us about the boil. When did it ultimately boil over? And how did that affect uh, young Dr. Jess?
2: So my natural inclination when things get overwhelming is to not internalize, but externalize, which always isn't good all the time. And people usually go one of two ways. They either internalize those feelings and become quiet and stuff those or they externalize and let everyone know how they feel, which is not either way isn't great as drawbacks. (laughs) So for me, I became sort of that victim doctor in the hospital where, you know, I wouldn't have any sleep and be on call or, you know, be admitting 50 million people in a night who are super sick. And then people or patients would bother you for small requests and you're kind of snapping at people or unhappy or, um, you know, not wanting to accommodate just because you're a victim. Right. Um, And that's sort of where I found myself a lot was um, somewhere that I didn't want to be or somewhere I didn't like myself, right, basically. And um, that's where I think I realized that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Like, how can you help heal someone when you're not healthy, <laughs> right? It's a novel idea.
0: <laughs> so so Dr. Jeff, so again, the the I guess the image that's developing for me as we're having this conversation is you had this traumatic experience of this auto accident. You move now to another Part of the country, you have some positive and negative experiences, but you're sort of harboring all of this this trauma, emotional trauma. Certainly, socially toxic environment. You now go into another toxic environment educationally, where you're you know where you're in fight or flight. You're you're being beaten down. You now go into your professional environment with your internship and your residency, and that's even worse. The pot's now boiling over, and what's happening is the young gal who wanted to serve other people and help them heal seems to be in a place where not only is she in a really bad place and she really toxic, that toxicity is now making it so she can't help people, but maybe even hurting people that she's supposed to be serving.
2: Right. Especially because I truly believed in a system that I think doesn't always serve the patient either. So it was perpetuating that system and that same toxic energy within that system.
0: So in the last week I had a debate with a brilliant young woman who uh, is the founder of Lyme Warrior, and we were debating about the virtues of a allopathic versus a naturopathic uh, path. Uh, and you know, and and quite frankly, I was I was very maybe surprising to you, very protective and 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 defensive over some of her arguments about medical doctors. So, uh, and, and Matt is going to begin to take you through some of the challenges of medical doctors. But talk to me about what's virtuous about the educational system that medical doctors go through, meaning how is it good? What is unique about it that allows you to, um, to treat people if used properly?
2: Well, you know, no one would believe in if it was totally false. So there are truths in it or no one would believe it. I mean, we have an internal radar for that. So um, it's just a slow for your brainwashing a little bit, but the good parts of it are that there is half truth in it. And so, you know, the physiology, the way the body works, the science that they're teaching, that they're the fundamentals and basics and pillars of science are really helpful. Um, you know, some of the pathophysiologies of disease, how the body works, the heart, the lungs, the brain, all of those things are really helpful. It's just the organization and the way it's taught is very um young very masculine and they've forgotten part of the feminine and so um the masculine aspect if it could be brought into homeostasis and a little more balanced would be beautiful there and they just add the feminine art of art of medicine that's the feminine aspect of it and it would be a little more complete for people um but yeah you know look at surgery look at modern surgery that's amazing you know, thank goodness for surgeons. Um, I really think in modern medicine and in my training, they did—they really did a great job of showing um, when people need surgery, how much lives you can save. And if I had to go back and do conventional medicine again, I would probably choose a surgical um, specialty that was needed because I think they need to get that right, that part.
1: I can just walk us through when enough was enough and you just said, I'm going to leave this traditional hospital environment and go out on my own to help people in a way that I never can or could through the hospital environment?
2: So um, I was, I ended up getting a divorce in 2013. That was really painful. I call it my Kim Kardashian wedding. It lasted like six months. And it was a, it was because of his family that was really religious. And so when that happened, it was such a humiliation and a, a really big kind of torture and um turning point again for me i learned really hard way things through pain apparently Um, so i bounced i went moved across the west coast to portland oregon excuse me and um when, when i moved you know when you move you kind of get a new perspective you're sort of immersed in new energy with new people new contacts new people who can open your eyes to things you may have not seen when you were embedded in a place you'd been forever, right? And so that started to happen to me. And even though I was still working in the hospital at the time, I started to really um, see problems with it and the cracks started to form for me. So I um, would start complaining and being really unhappy to my colleagues who are on my hospitalist team. And they would agree with me, but then they would say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Or that's just the way the system is right now. It's really broken and just take it, you know, just accept it. And I just couldn't when I saw it, I just couldn't. So I would just go down to the cafeteria and complain about the food they were feeding sick patients. I would complain about the drugs people were on for years without talking about lifestyle changes. I would complain about how many medications we were discharging older folks on, and they would sit me down and tell me to stop, and that I was getting primary care doctors who were giving patients these drugs for years and years and years in trouble by writing things in the chart. And so um, I just couldn't take it. I just it was literally like destroying me every day to go to work. So I just had to quit. And luckily enough, I didn't have, you know, a a partner or children. So I didn't have anyone else to worry about but me because it was very difficult after that to kind of find my way. There's not a ready-made system for doctors who aren't in the mainstream.
1: So now you're on your own, you leave the hospital environment and it's must be scary, right? You decide to start your own practice. What are you doing immediately after leaving the hospital?
2: I didn't really feel like I understood functional medicine well enough yet. So I started to shadow a naturopathic doctor. I was in, at this point in time, I'd moved from Portland to um Long Beach. So I was driving to Monterey Park to optimal health and wellness with Dr. Clement Lee to shadow him and learn. And then I was also working at Whitaker Wellness under Dr. Julian Whitaker, who was another medical doctor who kind of became my mentor. It was at the end of his career. But he was sort of, can I cuss? He was sort of a badass. Yes. He was a badass. So he was a badass? Yeah, he was because he he would like he got sued by Medicare for improper billing because he was reversing diabetes and heart disease in the eighties and he wasn't improperly billing and he knew it. And so he said, let's go to court. And he beat them in court because they were trying to shut him down because of what he was doing. He beat them in court and he stopped taking Medicare. So when I worked for Whitaker wellness, I had to like turn like like give away my Medicare benefits to be a doctor there. And he taught me a lot about herbs, about um, different procedures and acupuncture reflexology, um, different ways to get into parasympathetic mode, IVs that can really help people, um, you know, heal and feel better. And so I credit Whitaker Wellness and Dr. Jillian Whitaker a lot to teaching me early on in my career. So that helped me. I went to Gerson therapy. I learned all about Um, enemas and juicing and diet and supplements to help treat cancer and um, yeah it was a journey it's been a wild ride
1: (laughs) just talk to us about Gerson practitioner because that's something we've heard before we don't hear a lot on this podcast and I believe it's something that has to do with what really diet detox and supplementation right that those are the key principles of the Gerson practitioner model right
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the first thing I did when I got out was I was actually still in the hospital when I started to train under Gerson. And I think that's really what made me kind of like start arguing with the hospital is what they were teaching me. So it ripped the blinders right off my eyes. The first, you know, year you're really in a classroom setting, learning the science of why they do the things they do. And Gerson is, was created by Dr. Max Gerson in the 20s. He Um, was actually treating tuberculosis with juicing and coffee enemas and noticed that it was helping cancer patients as well. And so when you say Gerson, you think most people think cancer immediately because that's what they're known for. Um, They use a vegan diet with glandular supplementation as well as some other standard supplements and an aggressive Gerson therapy, let's say for like a stage three or four cancer is 13 juices a day and five coffee enemas, along with some ozone insufflations nowadays. So it's really like a job for that's all they do. And I, Gerson, I really respect them for teaching me about enemas, which are sta- which is a staple in my practice now. Ozone as well, I'm certified in because of them. And they really taught me about ge- nutrigenomics a lot. However, I kind of branched off on my own now because I really can see how everyone's so unique that a certain diet instead of supplements should be tailored for everyone.
1: And right, so, so many follow-up questions on that. The first thing is You're just left the hospital, you're studying this Gerson practice, and now you're using coffee enemas, which is something you don't hear about ever really in a hospital environment. So how did you go so quickly from a hospital environment to giving coffee enemas and juicing and diet and supplementation, and also this nutrigenomics, which I want to talk about next?
2: So, you know, it's really, it was a slow transition. I'll tell you what helped with social media. When I was in the hospital, I was already starting to get blog on social media a little bit more. I started in 2014 and I didn't leave the hospital until the end of 2015. So people would make these outlandish claims on social media, but I had the background to go research it. So I was humbled a lot when I would go research the things that they were talking about and I would see that there was truth in them but I wasn't taught that in school. So, um, you know, that really started to open my eyes slowly. And then I signed up for Gerson, not really knowing everything I was getting into. So when I went to San Diego to learn for that week in the classroom and they threw all that science at me, it was like, like I said, blinders being ripped off. I sat there with my mouth gaping open and, um, you know, I didn't necessarily do coffee enemas right away. It was a little daunting to me too. So I was literally learning in a classroom setting, trying to play around with how am I going to do this coffee enema that's really daunting to me. And I'm supposed to eventually when I learn all this tell people to do coffee enemas on their own if I haven't done it. So it was like this slow wiggle transition right for me birthing into the new doctor I am now, I guess.
1: (laughs) So you have to practice what you preach and you felt like, how can I recommend the coffee enema if I haven't done it myself? That wouldn't be the right thing to do, right? So you started to try these things to see how they work for you. And then you're learning the science that backs all of the stuff you've been learning on social media. And now you have the knowledge and you are blessed with the brain and you obviously everybody knows you're super smart to process this and understand the science behind it right which many of us don't frankly so it's glad it's good to hear that you can explain this all to us but talk <laughs> to us about nutrigenomics right because and i'm probably not even saying that correctly but what i understand that's the, that's the effect food has on your genetic expressions correct so we're all born with ge- a genetic sequence and and our genes are 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 can be expressed in different ways and some of some of us have different genetic snips which I think are really just genetic, we'll call them deficiencies that have us react differently to certain things like maybe detoxing or glutathione or glutamate or things like that. So what were you learning about genetics and the impact food had on genetics at this time?
2: Yeah, you know, now I know pathogens can have effect on genetics too. Back then I didn't, but back then food was all the rage and, you know, Gerson promotes a vegan diet with glandular supplements like liver capsules, right? Things like that, beef liver capsules, which I really love glandulars as well. I think they also have genetic effects, but, you know, you gotta think about things like um, phytoestrogens that are found in soy or, you know, the vitamins, like let's say vitamin A, for example, that we know helps fight viruses and infections, right? So there are certain things and certain vitamins that can influence our genes can turn certain things on and off. It's almost like a, like a piano with certain keys being pressed. You know, just because you have a gene doesn't mean it's active or inactive, but your lifestyle, your thoughts, the food you eat can influence whether that certain gene has been turned on or off. And so that's when people say that every bite of food is either medicine or disease causing, you know, good medicine, bad medicine. That's where that comes from. That's why.
1: So doctors, we've heard this from other doctors like Dr. Rolls, where many people say I have the MTHFR mutation and I can't detox, right? But then the counter to that is there are supplements and food-based things you can do to overcome that genetic SNP. And I think that's what you're arguing here and that you learned early on in your career is there's things you can do from a, a diet standpoint and a food standpoint and a supplement standpoint to overcome some of your genes that may make you more prone to not properly detox, for example, in the chronic Lyme world.
2: And since you brought up that one example, people really get stuck on that one. It's become a little infamous. And I always argue it's no more important than any other genetic SNP or polymorphism, which people will fight me on this. And I'm going to show you and take it a step further right now. MTHFR um, could actually be changed pretty quickly and the effects of it can be reversed pretty quickly. And that's because a lot, a lot, a lot of people have candida. Candida or yeast has the property of being able to slow down the enzyme methionine synthase, which is needed to make methionine, which is used with the is in MTHFR in the cycle. So if you have a candida or yeast colony that's slowing down an enzyme needed to make an amino acid necessary for MTH, your, your MTHFR to function properly, um, candida can slow that down, make the MTHFR polymorphism look worse than it is because you have candida. So if you detox from candida, your MTHFR doesn't look as active or doesn't bother you as much because it's actually candida slowing down an enzyme, not the actual genetic SNP that was causing problems.
1: So it sounds like it really wasn't even the gene because you said earlier that food can impact genetic expressions, but this isn't even... This isn't even, a you know, candida affecting your genetic expression. This is just something that your body can't do properly because of candida, but we're misinterpreting it as a genetic SNP. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes. Or you may have the genetic SNP, and it's worsened by a candida infection. And you think it's all the SNP when it's really the infection that's infecting the enzyme that's looking like the SNP.
1: That's wild. So have you, have you heard of Dr. Bob Miller? He, he does, he, he's a tick-borne disease specialist in epigenetics and he studies genes and certainly he has a supplement brand for to help people overcome genetic problems when healing from Lyme disease. I mean, what are your thoughts on the work that he does specific to things like, one of the things that fascinated me because many of us in the Lyme community have this, you know, we're always on, right? And that's part of the the nervous system component, I think. But when you're constantly feeling like you're on overdrive, He explained that as you can't convert glutamate to GABA from a neurotransmitter standpoint, and that actually can be the result of a genetic SNP. And there are ways using foods to overcome that. I mean, how far do you think it goes and how much overlap is there between genetics and symptoms caused by tick-borne infection, chronic infection, persistent infection, et cetera?
2: Absolutely. I'll give you one more example about what you just said. Glutamate to GABA. Glutamate's an exciting, notorious neurotransmitter. It makes people feel like anxious and pinged and, and you don't want too much glutamate. Trust me. GABA, which converts from glutamate is our calming neurotransmitter. Re- Actually that's found in the gut and the brain. It's really great to have GABA and most people don't have enough of it. You know what blocks glutamate um, carboxylates to transfer over from glutamate to GABA? Glutamate. Yep. Gluten.
1: So a gluten will prevent glutamate, a neurotransmitter, from converting to GABA, which will put you in a healing environment in your body, essentially.
2: Correct. So we have pathogens, food, all this stuff, blocking enzymes to make our SNPs look worse than they are, right? It's the environment.
1: So there's really so much overlap from what you eat, your genetic expression, pathogens like Lyme bacteria and co-infections, things like candida in your gut, which you can get when you take too many antibiotics, all of this together, it's the dog pile effect making you be sick. And if you start to address these collectively, you can reverse chronic illness, as you say, Dr. Jess, correct?
2: Yes, genes are multidimensional in my opinion. They are not, you know, 99% junk DNA, they used to say. That was a faux pas on their part. And so our genes are very multidimensional. They're very fluid. They can change based on, on environment, and that should empower people. That should not make them scared. That should empower you. you got too many toxins in your toxin bucket.
1: So I know, Dr. Just, you had made a comment, I believe, that 90% of chronic illness is related to, I believe you said, environment. And other factors that aren't necessarily genetics or something you're born with, right? So, give us a little bit more detail about that because we're kind of on this topic now where so many people think they're chronically ill and they can't get better. And I can't tell you how many people that listen to this podcast and people that reach out to us say, I'm chronically ill. There is no cure. I can't get better. And I've accepted this. Do you agree with that? And give us, give us reasons why you think that's not true based on your research and your, you know, your extremely dense medical background I mean you're looked at obviously as a as a you know as, a, as I will call you uh, the king or the queen of the Lyme community right and people respect your opinions I really want you to weigh in on this to give people hope that they can get better
2: Well, I mean, if you're telling yourself that you're never going to get better then you're a pretty powerful creator, you're not going to get better. So stop saying that first and foremost, I don't argue with patients about a lot of things, but I will argue with them about the way they talk to themselves. Um, And so, yeah, you know, you need to start understanding that your body's giving you clues about a very toxic environment and we're not supposed to be living the way we are in society and your body's really smart about it. And so let start looking at it that way, rather than there's always something wrong with me because that's that's not true. You're just sensitive. You're a canary in a coal mine in a very toxic society, and you warn everyone else what's bad for us who doesn't who don't react like me. I, I right and I don't react to anything. So the people who show me when they walk down a tired detergent aisle that those VOCs they're breathing in their nose are bad for them. Thank you for letting me know that canary in a coal mine. Right. So I really want you guys to understand that your body's always working for you and that you can heal this. And there, you can put this in remission. And, you know, people do it all the time. But you can't heal a body that you hate. You can't do it.
1: So talk to us about people that say I have severe sensitivities. I have extreme mass activation syndrome. I've been exposed to mold and I can't seem to get rid of it. And you know what? I just can't get better because everything I do triggers me and puts me in the hospital. It gives me a major flare, and I can't handle that medication. They're they're missing something, right? So talk to us about what your views are with those types of patients that you've dealt with that are really difficult and extremely sensitive, and then they have those false beliefs that I can't get better.
2: Yeah, I actually filmed the whole course on this called the Roadmap to Health because I had so many people who hit that roadblock, right? And it's it, healing isn't a race, it's a journey. And so there's many layers to pull back on the onion, if you will. Um, So some of the reasons that they may not be healing all the way. The biggest one, in my opinion, that I missed early on in my career is that they're stuck in that fight or fight position that we talked about, and they need limbic brain retraining. The limbic part of your brain, the part of the amygdala, um, is the part that sees and perceives fear and doomsday type of thinking, right? And so if you guys are constantly seeing the world through a fear-based lens and you don't have trust in the universe overall, that is not, that's gonna be a roadblock to your healing. You need to have trust and you need to understand that the world is a very loving place and that you're taken care of. And if I say this and you're rolling your eyes at me, then that needs some work there, right? Because you've had some things and some traumas happen to you that make you believe that the world is not a good place. And you need to fix that. Right. And I
1: think many of us, Dr. Jess, don't even recognize we're in fight or flight because when I started doing, taking supplements to help and realizing what quote unquote normal felt like from a mental, emotional, nervous system standpoint, I was blown away of how shitty I was living. I don't know how else to describe it. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is what it feels like to be normal again. I forgot. So people listening may be like, I'm not in fight or flight. Well, when I was in it, I don't think I really truly understood that I was fully in fight or flight. Right. I mean, that's something I think that we've realized
2: too. No one does. They don't. I didn't either. If you jump awake, if you are like light light sleeper, you can't get to deep sleep. You're always painting awake. That is a sign that you might not be balanced. If you can't like sit in silence or sit still, um, and you always have to be distracted or working on other people or other things, that is a distraction from you doing your self work. A lot of times these are clues for people, right? And being in flight or fight isn't the only reason, for example, um, that's a big one, but the other reasons are things like dental issues. Um, you know cavitations from having wisdom teeth removed mercury fillings infected root canals which are often asymptomatic that's a big reason people can't heal as well or they have to continually cleanse and they're so sick um, another one is um relates to being in fight or fight and actually sometimes elicits being in flight or fight is childhood trauma that's unresolved okay um, so I,
1: i'm sorry to interrupt but i would like to explore both of those a little bit deeper real quick right because my lyme journey started right after a dental procedure i was pretty, I would say I was living a poor lifestyle. I wasn't sleeping, but I was active. I was young and I was quote unquote healthy enough. Right. And I went, I never had cavities my whole life, had three cavities, got three cavities filled that night. I had my first symptom for Lyme disease. And then it progressed over years to the point of where I got debilitated. I don't really think I fully understand. And in fact, we had our, our Lyme hack today was by Daisy White. And it was all about the importance of your dental health in overcoming Lyme disease. So give us a little more detail if you can, Dr. Jess, why do those things matter? And why do you think me, for example, right after my, my ca- three cavities being filled, did I have my first symptom of Lyme disease?
2: Did you get silver fillings?
1: You know, I don't even know. I'm so ignorant to this, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't, they're, they're in the back of my mouth, so I'd have to go look in a mirror to see what's in there.
2: <laughs> I wonder, I wonder, you should look because it would make sense to me that things would happen to you after they put mercury in your mouth, right? I mean, this is why the dentist, conventional dentists had the, the highest rate of suicide is they play with a neurotoxin all day long. Um, this is why the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland was considered mad, they cured hats with mercury back then. So, you know, mercury is one of the most toxic substances on earth, it hides, very, very well in the body. And why do you think that bacteria are there? Um, They're there because they're the great decomposers. They, They do cleanup in the ecosystem. That's what they do. They eat organic waste. If you're full of heavy metals, you're probably gonna have parasites, some sort of bacteria and yeast that are there digesting things for you. That's why they're there. So the root cause is actually not the pathogen, it's the toxin that's attracting said pathogen. Right. So mercury is a problem. It's an, it's a it's a it leeches with hot liquids. It's a vapor.
1: So, so say that again. So it's not actually the toxin. I'm sorry, it's not actually the pathogen. It's a toxin that attracts the, the, the pathogen, basically what you're saying, I think, yeah, right?
2: Absolutely. Think about it because, like I said, bacteria is the great decomposer, it digests organic waste. What does mold do? It eats bacteria. Penicillin comes from penicillin mold. It was discovered in a petri dish eating the bacteria that was growing so it's all a giant ecosystem
1: so let's let's pivot over to because there's so much we can explore here the emotional trauma component we talked about dental health we talked about emotional trauma one of the things that you've been talking about a lot about and you did on our on our lime hack and thank you for that by the way you're brilliant Lime hack you got so much so much I have to tell you so much great feedback on that Lyme hack. and I don't know how you fit so much helpful information into a 59 second video it blew me away how much content you got into that I'm but
2: talk as fast as you Matt <laughs> <laughs> the
1: one of my the, the most common thing we got back from that is tell us more. About physical scars and how they can hold on to emotional trauma, and how do we address that? We got that in an overwhelming (laughs) manner in response to your video. So, talk a little bit about emotional trauma and the role physical scars play in harboring emotional trauma.
2: So, I just learned this recently, actually, in like January, February, from some of my colleagues. I did not know this either, Um, and had been missing. Sort of, this is a kind of I would think a missing piece in some of the way I was educating people um, in my app, even, and so. I, am, I started to be good friends with Kelly Kennedy, who owns True Wellness Center in North Wales, Pennsylvania, and Dr. Christine Schaffner, who um, owns Eminence Health in Seattle. And because I became good friends with them, it was almost like we'd known each other before we met. They are in experts in bioregulatory medicine. Bioregulatory medicine is medicine out of Germany and Switzerland. And if you guys are, I know about Lyme disease, you probably know how Germans treat it and how successful they are, right? Hyperthermia, things like that, right? That no one else does, that we consider woo-woo, but their scientists are straight onto quantum physics and way beyond us in what they're doing. Bioregulatory medicine from that area is no different. So what they taught me about was neural therapy. Neural therapy is injection of scars.
1: When you say, are you saying neural, like like neural and brain? N e u r a l. Correct. Okay. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure I understood. <laughs>
2: And injection of tonsils. And there's a purpose for this. So you got to think about all the women who have C sections, who have midline scars. Midline scars are basically the ones that impact the meridian or energy system of the body. Acupuncturists and Chinese medicine doctors have known for centuries that there are meridians or energy lines, energy focuses within the body that can be disrupted by things like tattoos scars, anything that interrupts the energy of the body, especially a scar, because the scar usually involves some sort of physical trauma to the body that the body holds onto in that Scar. So what I've seen is then they've they've done this to my dad. I've had my tonsils injected a number of times. I personally don't have scars. But if you're a woman out there who who has a midline C-section scar, you got to think about that trauma that sustained that birth, right? And many of you guys after the birth and C-section started to experience anxiety for free floating anxiety for no reason. What my friends at the Bioregulatory Medicine Institute have told me is you inject the scar with procaine, which is a local anesthetic that acts like a vortex. It drives the homeopathics that are also in the injection through the scar you don't inject like this you je- inject this way into the scar and as you're pulling the needle so I'm out, sorry,
1: Yes, people can't see something i want to clarify so you don't go down you don't go like at a 90 degree angle you go in sideways to the scar right
2: yes you go in parallel to the scar and as you're pulling the very small needle out you're injecting procaine and homeopathics tailored to the patient for me i need to stuff from my liver and candida, right so when they injected my tonsils that's the homeopathics they use to talk to my body homeopathics are kind of like liquid acupuncture they give information to the body so when you inject the scars you're releasing that trauma that sympathetic overdrive that sustained them and many women who have c-sections will say oh my gosh my anxiety is gone and i haven't personally seen this but what all of them have told me is when you inject the scar about 30 times you can go oh look and you can kind of peel the edge off and peel the entire scar off and it's gone yeah i did the same face matt seriously and so and when they injected my tonsils have
1: I, you seen it dr jess have you seen that personally yes okay
2: I haven't seen that many injections on one person yet to see that, but I believe them because all of them tell me this happens. And then basically with tonsils, a hundred percent of people need their tonsils injected. It's a small, almost acupuncture. Why
1: but Why does everybody really need their tonsil injected? What's so special about the tonsils?
2: The ring of the wall dyer is in the tonsils. This is the heralding location that speaks to the rest of the lymphatic system. If you go to bioregulatory medicine, they ask about three things, lymph, scars, and teeth. That's it. Because the lymph is the system. It's a piezoelectric system that uses different um, positive, negative chemical communicators to talk to each other. All the neurotransmitters, hormones, everything goes through the lymphatic system and trauma is stored in the lymphatic system. Most people's lymphatic systems are clogged. They're stagnant. They're, it's like gravy. Okay. And so um, it's really the sewer system of the body. And so really the tonsils are the heralding organ of the lymphatic system. So if I can inject homeopathics there, I'm speaking to the rest of the lymphatic system to drain Right. So So you say
1: heralding, you you mean it's really like the communication center. That's, that's a way to communicate with your entire lymphatic system.
2: Correct. Exactly. And so the next logical question people ask is, oh my God, I had my tonsils taken out. What do I do? Well, guess what? My dad had his tonsils taken out when he was four years old, probably because of trauma in his household. I know his, what he grew up with. And he now has a chronic lymphocytic leukemia of the lymphatic system 70 years later. So that's why I took him to the clinic to have the scar tissue where his tonsils were injected, which is still a communicator to the lymphatic system.
1: Wow. So, okay, going back to the scar though. So it's, it's homeopathics and it's an anesthetic essentially, right? You go, in, you go in parallel to it. So you don't go in down, you go sideways or parallel. And the home, what, what, what does it actually do? How do the homeopathics... And I'm guessing homeopathics are just natural herbs and supplements. Like is that is that what what that means?
2: Yeah, they're usually plant essences and they um I love the ones they use at True Wellness because they use ones from Switzerland that are harvested with moon cycles and they only let women not on their cycles harvest the plant. So it's this big thing over in Switzerland. And when you take care of the full plant essence like that and how it's harvested, how it's cured, how it's treated, how it's processed and how it's delivered to the patient, it matters.
1: And- Why? Why does it matter if a woman is not on her cycle when she's harvesting the plant?
2: It's really an ancient, ancient herbalist science about really you want someone to be have a certain energy. You want certain, someone to have a certain essence. It's a very feminine essence we're looking for. So that's why women are doing it and very careful about what cycle, what moon is going on during harvestation. I mean, this goes comes back from farmer's almanacs about how to treat herbs, right? And so this is really what they practice in Switzerland with the homeopathics they use. And like I mentioned, homeopathics are liquid acupuncture, their information talking to the body and they use the, the, uh, foundational pillar of like cures like, so they give just, um, a little bit each time. Right. And you can actually work with the dosage based on people and how much their body can handle. And in bioregulatory medicine, they determine this by looking at heart rate variability and, um, um, computerized thermography. So temperature as well and lymph nodes and teeth. And they determine based on their education, these factors, what your body can handle. Not everyone can handle their tonsils injected right out of the gate. It's too much. You have to work them into it because they're so toxic.
1: Okay. So your tonsils are communicating to your lymphatic system. And that's why the tonsils are important. The scars we talked about now, the scars, I believe you said earlier are Having an impact on your nervous system because of the trauma being held there. So by doing these injections and dealing with the, the physical star, scars, holding emotional trauma will allow you to get your nervous system out of fight or flight and back into rest and digest. Correct.
2: Correct. Exactly. Okay.
1: So I want to make sure I, you're giving us so much. I want to make sure I'm processing this correctly. So you also talk about ozone, and some people had asked questions: Can you use ozone to treat scars? Is that something that's not a good idea? Because we did get that question as one of our community submitted questions for this podcast.
2: You know, there's something special about cocaine acting as the vehicle to drive things into the body where they're supposed to be. I love ozone and used to, I would go send my patients to get their tonsils injected with ozone, but there's some um, discrepancy or controversy, if you will, about whether ozone kills off all our microbiome or all of the good bacteria where you're injecting. And especially if you're doing it multiple times, like, you know, I've had my tonsils injected three times now. Um, but I don't know if it's great to have your tonsils injected multiple times with ozone, um, maybe once, especially if you're really toxic, if you don't get a lot of bang for your buck. I would go the more gentle route where you're talking to the body. Cause I, I hate to force the body. I want to talk to the body gentle and bring it back naturally on its own because it's smarter than me. <laughs>
1: so you recommend procaine over ozone because it's more gentle and it doesn't have the potential side effect of killing off good uh, good flora, sort of like doxycyclines. So I think you're saying that, that really ozone could be like doxycycline or it could be having a negative effect and killing off good flora in your gut as well. Is that what you're saying?
2: Correct. Exactly. And not everyone will be that way, right? We're all so different. It's just, I want to be kind of conservative because you never know what type of patient you're dealing with.
1: So a, a lot of people are using ozone and some of the things we hear from different people are Ozone itself will actually kill pathogens, and other people argue that ozone itself will just strengthen your immune system, which in turn kills pathogens. What do you, what, you know, can you clarify that for us?
2: You know, it does a little bit of both. Honestly, um, ozone does this thing when you put it in the body, let's say you do IV or insufflations, whatever your flavor is, it turns into a radical oxygen species as well as hydrogen peroxide. Now hydrogen peroxide is a prooxidant made in the body to kill things. It kills bacteria. It's antifungal, antiparasitic, antiviral, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, But the issue with ozone is we, It's a pro-oxidant. You guys know about antioxidants. This is a pro-oxidant. It's why you don't want to do ozone and IV vitamin C in the same day. they are two competing factors. One's an antioxidant, one's a pro-oxidant. So you do them on opposite days. Now, just like anything else, too much of a good thing can be too much right? You don't want too many pro-oxidants in your body. You don't want too many antioxidants in your body. You want a nice mix. And so everyone is a little bit different. It needs to be evaluated properly to figure out if they're a good candidate for that, right? And honestly, ozone is a killing process in the body. So just like I like to make sure people are ready for detoxes, I like to prep the body and make sure they're ready for ozone just the Mm. same.
1: So ozone should be approached with caution because you need to be prepared for it and it will both kill pathogens and also bolster the immune system yes. and could cause a die off or a Herx reaction possibly if you're not prepared for it. Now. Some people have argued that like a high oxygenated environment could be good to help kill off things like Lyme. But then we've heard people tell us we've had conflicting views on this, that something like Babesia, for example, may thrive in oxygen, whereas Lyme may die in oxygen. So can you speak to us about the role oxygen plays in various pathogens, but specifically tick-borne pathogens like, like Borrelia and Babesia?
2: Oh, you guys getting controversial. You're getting in the like forums where people talk about this stuff because not everybody knows this. I actually had this happen with a patient. She, um, I didn't know that she was doing this. She and her husband had bought, you know, like 50 sessions at a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which is hyper oxygenating the body, just like ozone does. Right. And she all of a sudden developed severe fatigue, palpitations and shortness of breath, night sweats, all that stuff out of nowhere, out of nowhere, there was no other trauma. There was no, nothing else that should have caused. It. We played around with, she may have had an exposure in a moldy home, which sort of lit the fire for things. But I had never seen this before. And I had to go do lots of research because I had never seen this in my patient. And what I came up with was it was a reactivation of something. Um, I think she'd also had covid um, as well, and I think that it uncovered something in, or unearthed something. And the science will tell you this can't happen, but there's so many people who say it, and I'm, I'm on the I'm on the belief that I always believe people over peer-reviewed papers these days. So I. Really, that was my final determination was that was that was what happened to my patient. And so I that's what I mean. I think that you need to be really careful about um, certain people and too much of something can be too much of a good thing. She was on her 40th hyperbaric oxygen chamber session when this happened.
1: So it really it's bioindividual, meaning oxygen can be good for some people or the hyperbaric oxygen therapy can be good for some people, but maybe it's going to be allowing something like babesia to take off and give you those, because those symptoms you described are babesia symptoms too, right? So it kind of makes sense based on what we've heard from some people that that could be true based on reactions. Now, the other piece of this is, and I kind of want to, I want to bounce back to this, is because one of the things I, I just, I don't want to forget to ask you, reading your website, you talked about eating healthy gummy bears and I loved gummy bears, right? And I'm like, I can't eat them anymore. They're filled with sugar. So what do you mean by healthy gummy bears? And I know I'm all over the place here, but can you give us a little information about, cause you know, it was what's your favorite food, Dr. Jess. And you said, honestly, probably goat cheese or healthy gummy bears. What are they?
2: Blueberries. I should have
1: blueberries. Said. You did it on there. You did say blueberries. I
2: love blueberries. So do you guys know the um, what are they called? Smart treats or smart sweets? They make yes. gummy bears now and they have like chicory fiber, which is a prebiotic in them. And they're so chewy. They're almost too chewy. Like I'm like, I'm really going to like rip something out of my teeth, but um, they're, they're a healthier ingredients. So you should check them out. They even make those Swedish fish that are, have some healthier ingredients too. So smart sweets. <laughs> well,
1: thank you for that. Personally, that was more of a personal question. Hopefully the community benefits as well, but let's talk, <laughs> you did, you did touch on COVID there, Dr. Jess. So w- unfortunately we know, Rich and I know many people locally who are suffering greatly from long COVID that were healthy before and may or may not have a tip on and just haven't tested. And we know many people in the Lyme community who have gotten COVID and now are so much worse off than they were before COVID. What are your views towards long COVID? And what are your, what's your advice to people that are suffering or trying to battle and overcome long COVID now?
2: Well, I actually just did a PowerPoint on this. So this is a great question for me right now. It's fresh. Um, long haulers is um, a combination of things for people, but there's a probably three main points that um, people need to understand. Um, First and foremost, in about 73% of cases that they study, there is reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus or some sort of herpes virus, including CMV, HHV-6, or or Epstein-Barr, which causes mono, right? And so if you guys have had a pretty astute practitioner who's run some tests and you have your early antigen EA antigen reactivated on your FC bar panel this means that a lot of your symptoms are probably coming from whatever this virus is doing and behaving as Um, and you know it can be more than that in my opinion as well I think a lot of people are having parasites reactivated too there's some parasitic symptoms that are involved and you know Um, If you look at a lot of the literature parasites and viruses interplay with each other um, in the studies and actually parasites can hold my heavy metals and viruses so it's not surprising to me that there's this interplay with COVID reactivating things. Other than that the other thing that's happening is that people um, have risk factors for low nitric oxide. And when COVID goes in and causes a a cytokine storm in people, it absolutely drains the mitochondria, damages the mitochondria. They release a bunch of stuff out in the bloodstream, the white blood cells and mitochondria do, um, which causes a drain of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is needed to to make testosterone, to bring blood and oxygen to our, our glands and our organs, needed to dilate blood vessels, it's extremely important. The people who have low nitric oxide are people with metabolic syndrome, like diabetes, high blood pressure, overweight, sedentary lifestyle. These are people who are also getting severe COVID. So there is a similarity here with the, with the nitric oxide link. Um, think cause of this, things that help boost nitric oxide will help these people mouth taping. Why? Because the precursor to nitric oxide is actually the saliva. When you mouth breathe, you dry your saliva out. You can't make nitric oxide. A, you can't make testosterone. B, you can't make nitric oxide. So you need to mouth tape or make sure you don't have sleep apnea and you're treating for that. Other things, beetroot powder helps to make nitric oxide. L-citrulline helps to make nitric oxide.
1: RG. What's the second one? L what? I've never heard of that.
2: Before. L-citrulline.
1: Okay. I'm sorry. I know you had more. I just wanted to make sure I heard that one.
2: Centrally and arginine, these amino acids help to make... nitric oxide, vitamin C, it's actually what's happening in severe long haulers is actually oxidation of the blood vessels and rusting of the blood vessels. That's literally what's happening. So there's oxidation, there's mitochondrial damage. And then if you have reactivation of viruses or herpes viruses, you have a double whammy to the mitochondria. So this is where people are struggling, right? Is they need to help dilate, bring, bring oxygen to the different organs and to treat underlying reactivations, whether parasitic or viral.
1: Okay. So let's talk about for a second, these other things going on, right? Because we know Lyme disease is a big problem. We know, we know co-infections are a big problem. We know we've heard a lot about mold on this podcast and we've heard a lot about other things like heavy metals. But one of the things that always makes me anxious is we had somebody who was on our podcast just this week. And at first had a diagnosis of reactivated Epstein-Barr virus for two years. That's all she was treating. And she didn't really get much better. And that equates in my mind to other people who say, I just have EBV and I'm going to treat that. Or I have parasites and I'm only going to address parasites or, you know, I have heavy metal exposure and I'm just going to treat that. But I feel like that's one piece of a million things that have to be looked at. And it makes me anxious when people do that, or they go on social media and they say, I'm going to just treat EBV and I'm going to get better. Or I did a parasite cleanse and I'm healed. And I'm like, Ooh, that's not really, that's really not good advice. And what are your thoughts on that? Because they're all pieces of the puzzle. But I think when you just focus on one or you micro target, it's a really, really bad approach to healing chronic illness like chronic Lyme disease.
2: Absolutely, you know it's a it's an entire lifestyle change and thought pattern change in my opinion um, and really, I see that a lot where people are just repetitively killing things off without addressing why your body might be hospitable to the things you're killing off and having to kill off continuously. What is going on that's still hospitable, right? And, you know, really there isn't just one single bullet solution. People like to make healthcare very reductionist and very two-dimensional, but that's why medical school is so long is because everyone is so individual. You really have to take everyone uniquely and on a case-by-case, spaces. And so you can't just look at one person and compare your health journey to them because they feel better after a parasite cleanse. You are not only seeing a snippet on social media and not the full health journey, which is much more of a struggle for most people.
1: And also what do they do before, during, and after that isn't being shared, right? I mean, that's that's often a lot of times the case that that's happening here, but we know people, so we'll focus on parasites because it seems like parasites are really, a really powerful part of the healing journey, but sometimes I think people ne- too narrowly focus on them, right, so if somebody's treating parasites and we had w- one person who told us they have been treating for like three to five years, they were treating parasites, and they were stuck in this cycle and I'm using cell I'm using what I, I think it was, you know, the whole, the whole parasite protocol, power one, two, whatever it was. And they just keep coming out. I keep passing parasites. What's wrong with me? How long should I keep doing this for? And I don't know enough about this, but my view is, Hey, look, obviously to your point, something in your body is making it hospitable to these parasites and you have to look elsewhere address that and then maybe you'll finally be able to get yourself rid of these parasites because i think a year or more on a parasite cleanse is a sign that there's something else going on making your body you know welcoming environment to these parasites so what do you what's your view on that
2: yeah Absolutely. You've got mold in your house, you have water damage, you have teeth issues to address, you have breast implants, you have your second flight or fight. There's something else that we're missing. Um, If you are still seeing things come out or your drainage pathways are stopped up, right? Are you not supporting your liver and there's a slow trickle (laughs) for years? You know what I mean? Um, So there's a lot of different reasons that people can get stuck. This is honestly where I consider my expertise at.
1: So... So if somebody's struggling with parasites, they need to come see. And we tell everybody, go talk to Dr. Jess when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. But, you know, the other thing that makes it really interesting to me is if somebody is if somebody's treating and they're not having the success they want, what options do they have? Right. So like for parasites, for example, we know there's a cell core protocol, but if they're not having success, I mean, what are what are some other things they can use to treat parasites, but possibly besides cell core? We did an Instagram live with Dr. Casey Kelly. And she talked to us about possibly using pharmaceuticals and other things that aren't, you know, microformulas or cell core formulas that can maybe help fill in some of the gaps that are being missed in regards to parasites. Do you think that's true that some, there's a subset where that's applicable or do you think it's generally going to be something else that's being missed that's not parasitic in nature?
2: I mean, everybody's different. So yeah. Every, occasionally, rarely I'll see someone do better on something, you know, like I see a lot of people get benefit from ivermectin, for example. Right. Um, but, you know, I think it's deeper than that. Like there, there are people who have trauma who, who the trauma refuses to let them release things until they release the trauma. Literally, I've seen that so many times. So that that's going to stop an antiparasitic. That's you know a prescription or a supplement, either one, until you treat that trauma. That is root cause for me, right? So I, I there's so many different things that people need to look at. Um, that maybe causing them to hold on to things, right? Like constipation is usually something emotional that you need to let go of as well. So I often become almost like this psychologist when I talk to people because it's, it's, it's this subtle energy that people can't see in themselves. It's often the roadblock. It's not a specific like magic pill that'll do it all the time.
1: So but it sounds like you're saying usually trauma and nervous system dysregulation are the reasons why people get constipated and have a negative reaction to possibly binders or things like that or holding on to parasites, etc. And and how do you address that? Right. Because so many people are willing, you know, and not everybody, but many of us now have gotten to the point where, okay, how do I manage my trauma? How do I deal with distress? We talked about, you know, the, the brain rewiring stuff. So are you an advocate of DNRS, Gupta, Vital side? Which ones do you recommend in that regard? And what else can be done to address trauma and these types of things with the nervous system?
2: All absolutely everything you just said, I like all those programs. Yeah, just for the people who did the science out there, think about if you're stuck in flight or fight, your sphincter of OD, you don't release parasympathetic digestive enzymes properly, you have low stomach acid, which invites pathogens in and doesn't let you break down your nutrients properly, right? So that's the science behind just a snippet of why it's not good to be stuck in flight or fight. I have seen people p- fix their chronic bloating and SIBO symptoms by regulating their nervous system. So this is much bigger than what you than what a lot of people think. It is. I love Dynamic Neural Retraining System or retrainingthebrain.com. It's really affordable, but it, the, the, the trade-off is that you have to be proactive and not mind homework because it's a more affordable price. So a lot of people have, who need this work have this resistance to want to do it because it's it's hard. It's hard to get into your trauma and feel those feelings that you've been avoiding. Um, the Gupta's program is great. Um, somatic therapy is great. Um, meditation breath work, getting into parasympathetic mode on your own if you're able to do that is great. Um, really looking into cellular release therapy is what I used, right? There's a number of different ways to release trauma, EMDR, tapping, and nothing is what better than the other one. It's that you have to kind of Try things out because there's going to be your specific recipe that works for you that may not work for your friend.
1: Like, Jess, what are your views on energy healing? I want to be specific because, you know, when we first started to take boot camp, Rich and I had to be convicted over and over and over again. We heard about bioresonance, we heard about biomagnetism. Like, that's crazy. You're a snake oil salesman. And then, you know, we've <laughs> come a long way with now we're really open minded, right? But yeah. one of the things that I'm still, I have a question mark on is the science behind energy healing remotely. So if somebody's on a phone session or somebody's on a Zoom session and they're able to energetically cleanse you or heal you of something, it just seems so odd to me scientifically, but it's helped a lot of people. So what are your views on that? I mean, do you think that that's a valid science-backed tool that can be helpful for some people because we always want to recommend things that we believe are science backed and the professionals are supporting but this is something that has helped some people other people say oh my goodness I spent so much money on energy healing on zoom and I feel taken advantage of I feel like a fool why did I do that right so where, where do you where do you fall in that regard
2: Oh my gosh. So yeah, I mean, cellular release is done remotely, but you know, you're in a meditative state saying yes or no to the therapist that's asking questions. So you're controlling the show and clearing things, right? Um, I'll give you an example. Um, The Germans really don't play around with Lulu stuff they just don't or emotional stuff, it's either science or blah, right? So they have a machine at True Wellness Center that's made by a German physician. It's called the iMate, Immune Modulary Allergy Elimination Technique, and it muscle tests from a distance. That's what it does. And it uses the absolute scientific basis of quantum physics. So if you don't think that remote energy healing can happen, you don't believe in quantum entanglement. And so it usually, you can literally put in someone's name, their address, their physical location, and it, this machine finds them. And I had one of my most favorite patients do a long-distance healing with Ian at Truanas who uses the machine from Germany, and she has multiple sclerosis. One of the first things that it came up with was Epstein-Barr embedded in her DNA. It was one of the first things that it showed, which now the studies are showing that Epstein-Barr and giving antibodies to Epstein-Barr had reversed 20 out of 23 MS patients.
1: Get out of here. Wow, okay, so you, you've you just made me into a believer. I was, always, I, was on, I was in the gray area, I was in the borderline, but now I'm a believer, thanks to you, Dr. Jess, because <laughs> we respect you so much. But, you know, another another thing I want to talk about is because, you know, you talk about on your website, and we've heard you talk about the dangers of so many things that we just take for granted, right? like teflon dirty tap water you know having to eliminate all these toxins in your body i mean i'm not gonna lie if i'm wrapping up food i use tinfoil if i am drinking water sometimes i drink tap water you know i get yelled at by people in the community all the time you should be drinking distilled water forget about filtered water you should be only drinking distilled water i'm like "Well, well then what about mineralization i have to remineralize if i'm drinking distilled water right you know how important are these things and how much is too much because I have to be honest it's sometimes it can be overwhelming to do all this stuff right so what what's really important and what are things that maybe you know are things that we can kind of just say okay that's not that big of a deal right and that's i want to get your view on that
2: yeah absolutely so i call tap water infertility water just so you know <laughs> or radiation water because people don't
1: are you saying i'm infertile because i'm drinking tap water dr jess is that what you're telling me are you getting an energy read here
2: <laughs> i'm just saying just stop doing it okay so, so no, but I also call it radiation water because people don't understand that you can't you can't get radiation out by filtering. You have to only distill it to remove radiation. So um, sorry
1: to interrupt you again, but so you're saying you're saying filtered water still has radiation in it. The only yeah. way to have pure water is to have distilled water, which is radiation free and chemical free. Correct.
2: Correct. Exactly. Okay. There are a lot of people who worry about adding minerals back, and you know, I the jury is still out for me on this. But like, you get minerals from your food. Like you do, you get minerals from your food. So, does it matter that you have to add minerals every single time back to your water? I don't think so. Um, I, you know, i the jury is still out for me on that. Um, I also really like structured water too. But
1: just what does that mean, structured water? I've never heard of that.
2: So, you should read Gerald Pollock's book, The Fourth Phase of Water. So, it talks about how water not only forms H2O, but the H2O clusters together, and the way it clusters forms a big like octave, I like, I don't even know the shape it forms, but it's a big crystallized shape that then is able to go inside the cells intracellularly inside. But if there are toxin chemicals in between the H2O molecules, they can't cluster properly that that most of us are dehydrated intracellularly. Right. Um, So it's a, it's a big deal. The fourth phase of water actually, they think um, looks like kind of like jelly, right? You got to think if you cut yourself, you don't bleed water. (laughs)
1: So. Wow. So th- this is brilliant. All right. So, so tin foil. am I, am I an absolute fool for using tinfoil?
2: Hmm. Jury's still out on that. I don't because I worry about cooking and the vapors that can come from aluminum. Right. And there's so much glyphosate in things. Now glyphosate has this characteristic where it can bind up aluminum and bypass the gut barrier. And then it goes to the organs that have the most blood supply, which is the pineal gland in the brain and the kidneys. And so that's why you see a lot of chronic kidney disease, a lot of calcified pineal glands is from my opinion, the Roundup Ready glyphosate aluminum package that is now available to all.
1: (laughs) Gotcha. So, so really I'm a fool as you were being polite there. That's okay. So the next question I have is talk to us about, and I think everybody knows Dr. Jess for kill, bind and sweat. But what I didn't know about kill, bind and sweat, Dr. Jess is there are certain people you caution to be weary of proceeding with Kilbine Sweat. So if you have POTS and if you're heat intolerant and some other things, right? So I guess if you can, at first, to people that don't know that are listening, give us a quick overview of Kilbine Sweat and then why certain people with heat, you know, heat tolerant intolerances and people that have POTS should be cautious when using this model.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Kill By Sweat kind of accidentally took fire when I just sort of hashtagged it online and then everyone loved it. And I guess it's, I either sound like a serial killer or an S&M doctor, you choose. So basically um, it's, I'd advise everyone not to do this protocol until you're sort of a little more seasoned detoxer. So it's sort of a second tier protocol because you need your drainage pathways open. You need your body prepped beforehand. You can sweat, you can poop, you're sleeping okay. Your energy's decent before you go killing anything off. Okay, so that's a disclaimer. So first of all, you want to take an herbal antimicrobial, um, you know, you guys know like wormwood, oil of oregano, all these wonderful things, something, some combination of that. Wait about 30 minutes and take the binder of your choice. And a toxin binder is something like activated charcoal, zeolite or um, bentonite clay or fulvic and humic acids. And that really helps to mop up or bind up what you're just killing off.
1: And that and happens then, about an hour after the antimicrobial, correct? You want to wait, I think, 45 minutes to an hour, you say?
2: Yeah, and then you hop in a sauna, get to a workout, hot Epsom salt bath, any way to sweat so that your body comes like, okay, we're killing things off, we're mopping them up, and then we're sweating them out. And you should notice that your body picks up the sweat pathway a little faster because it, it's it's kind of picking up what you're throwing down. <laughs>
1: No, that makes sense. So, but I do, I do have a question. So I know you recommend biocyte and I think LSF on your website. So that's another antimicrobial, I think tincture. Is that what it is that you recommend from an antimicrobial standpoint?
2: It's liposomal, which means it's more bioavailable and easily absorbable.
1: And that'll address things like Lyme bacteria and tick-borne illnesses.
2: For sure. I love and It's also safe for kiddos, but it's a liquid. They use essential oils as the biofilm buster.
1: Gotcha. Now let's talk about binders because there's so many freaking binders. And we get this question all the time. And and I want to ask you a question that we asked Dr. Kelly on Thursday. And and I want to see if I you're going to shoot me down too on this one. So I, I I love chlorella. I started taking chlorella and had all kinds of weird things happen to me and they were wonderful. And then I leveled off, right? So without going into dirty details. And I went up to 30 capsules, took took a pretty high volume for several months, and I thought it was great. Rich took one and couldn't leave the bathroom for an entire day, one capsule. What do you think that means? Why do you think Rich, who is not somebody battling with health issues and doesn't have Lyme disease that we know of, reacted so strongly to one chlorella? And I was able to get to 30 pretty quickly.
2: That's crazy. That's just goes to show you how, how individual people are. Um, it's it, Rich, you may have more of a warrior genotype where you don't feel things that are inside of you that shouldn't be there. And so then you take something to pull it out and activate some of your biochemical pathways at the same time. And your body's like, oh, here's something we miss. Get it out of us now.
1: So what does that mean, Dr. Jess? That means that your body's recognizing the chlorella as something foreign, and saying, "Oh, we got to flushes out." So it's just giving him extreme diarrhea. Like, is that what's happening? I'm trying to simplify this. That's or Am I mistaken?
2: Finding something else that's foreign in the body that his body missed.
1: Oh, so he's he's harboring something bad, and he's just not responding to it. That's what I was thinking, Rich. See, I thought Rich had bad candida. Do you think it could be possible that he has candida?
2: Yeah, I mean it's possible everyone has candida, like my whole sturdy little cousin.
0: But Matt, let's not forget Dr. Jess said I'm a warrior.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are a warrior with, with something bad in you that that is pulling out. So I think you need to go on this cleanse rich and you need to go back on it because that's a sign that there's something in your body that needs to be addressed, I think, Dr. Jess, right?
2: So, you know, when I went to Trulanus, they looked at my blood and in a dark field microscopy, and I had candida all in there and heavy metals inside my red blood cells. And they were like, oh, you have candida because you have heavy metals inside your red blood cells. It's there digesting everything. And every now and then I'll get like, you know, itchy rashes and like, you know, a sweets craving at night. Right. And so that's, yeah, you probably, I didn't even know I had it.
1: <laughs> wow. So, Rich, you have, you have a lot of thinking to do, Rich. I think you need to hire Dr. Jess for a, for a consult here, I agree, uh, but I, I,
0: I'm going to hold on to it being the warrior.
1: <laughs> I'm holding on to the fact that you're holding some sort of pathogen that you're, you're not responding to. And I'm going I'm to peer pressure you into treating it. So, Dr. Jess, tell us about these binders more, though, because, you know, we, we often get questions. Like, I, have, I live in a moldy environment or I was exposed to mold what binder is best for mold? What binder is best to remove toxins when I'm treating and the lime is dying off, right? So you you mentioned activated charcoal. We talked about chlorella. We talked about, you know, uh, fulvic and humic acid. And from what I understand, these binders are used for different things. Like fulvic and humic acid are more systemic binders that are getting into your bloodstream and possibly your brain to pull out toxins from your bloodstream, whereas things like maybe activated charcoal are more GI-based binders for your GI system. So can you just give us a little detail about what binders are classified in what grouping and what they can be used for, like mold or systemic types of, of toxins?
2: Well, I think the synthetic traditional system uses cholestyramine and Wacol for mold, right? Which is a synthetic binder also used for cholesterol, but it binds up a lot of your nutrients. So I'm not crazy about that one. I actually prefer activated carbons and fulvic and humix because they're a little more gentle and they turn on things like the NERF-2 pathway, which is anti-cancer. So it's sort of helping your body come back and rev up and fight and balance as well as binding things up at the same time. I also like them because you don't have to time them away from things as much. So that's really helpful and practical for people too. Um, the activated charcoal is the great hangover binder. It stays in the gut. So it really helps people when they're hungover the next day. Um, that's what I usually use that one for. Zeolite and bentonite clay are wonderful for certain types of mold too. They bind up their own, um, quite a bit of different type of mycotoxins on their profiles so pretty good.
1: They can get into the blood because mold is generally like, the mycotoxins are more in your blood and tissues, right? So is yeah, that the case or am I mistaken with that?
2: The fat tissue actually—they're very lipophilic, which means they love the fat. Um, so in the, I think, brains, seventy percent fat, right? Um, you know, so
1: mycotoxins love the brain. You're saying?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and zeolite can get into the brain to pull out the mycotoxins.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the activated carbons have a little bit more science behind them to show that. But yeah, you know, there's a couple of things like we don't know, for example, like with chadoglobin, we don't know. That one definitely crosses the blood-brain barrier that mycotoxin and is able to form abscesses in the brain. We don't really know what binder is successful to get that one out. Like if you look at the charts, we don't really know about Mm -hmm. a lot of this because it's new science. Um, But yeah, the zeolite and bentonites do go out of the gut to bind things up. Um, I know that the activated carbons from CellCore and the fulvix and humics are able to cross the blood-brain barrier because some of their science.
1: So can you give us, because CellCore is a really popular brand, many people respect that brand, I think it's pretty well accepted by the community, what binders are available through CellCore slash microformulas, you know, microformulas being, you know, I can buy it on my own CellCore meaning I have to buy it through a practitioner, but really one and the same, I believe. What are, what are the available binders through cell core slash formulas and, and which ones are systemic that can get into your brain and get into your tissues and which ones are more focused on just maybe your gut or your GI tract or things like parasites?
2: So all of their binders leave the gut. <clears throat> Swimming. my favorite one for mold specifically is carboxy um it's a uh, it's short and long chain carbons as well as polysaccharides amino acids and essential amino acids and activated carbons with fulvic and humic and so it's a very dark powder-based supplement you can titrate up or low as you need it which is great and it helps to cross the blood brain barrier out of the gut um and i've seen some crazy reactions from carboxy because you ha- it's really a one you don't want to start out with, you kind of want to work your way up to it because it is pretty powerful. And the secret is to take it in juice. It looks like moat water, but it tastes like juice.
1: And it makes it more tolerable if you put it in juice or it just makes it easier to to take to actually ingest.
2: It's more tolerable taste wise.
1: (laughs) Okay. Now, what is something a little bit lower that if somebody wants to dabble with a binder, they can go that route before going on to something that may give them a, a reaction or be a little more tougher on their system?
2: You know, I would try something. I really like Ultra Binder by um, Quicksilver Scientific. It's a mixture of z and clays and things in it. Um, and that seems people seem to tolerate that a little bit better sometimes if they're just starting out. It's also a powder, which I like because you can titrate, you can take very small doses for people who are really sensitive.
1: All right. So, my final question for you before Rich picks back up is, we know you do something really, really cool now, wellness plus, right? And and I've geeked out over it. I watched your Instagram live with Margo about it and was really interested in it. So if you could just give us a brief overview before Rich starts asking more questions about it, what is wellness plus and why did you decide to move away from seeing patients and clients in this you know alternative health field to building wellness plus and moving away from your practice?
2: Well, this is actually a really cool story um it's sort of i think divine i had a patient who came to see me at nourish medical center when i saw patients at my at a naturopathic clinic in san diego and he had been to 39 doctors and had a pretty successful tech company and was you know built the whole back-end supply solutions to apple and was falling asleep on the red carpet when he was being flown out there and was told he was crazy given antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications to treat everything and when i looked at his labs he had lo- had high liver enzymes, low platelets, low testosterone, and he was, you know, mid thirties and he had all the symptoms of Lyme and, you know, some co-infections as well. And so we tested him, got him tested. He ended up having mold in his very nice house on the beach in San Diego and, you know, got out of that situation um, and ended up being, after four years of him being my patient, Whenever my whenever shareholders um, and I lost my supplement company to shareholders, basically, it was a big faux pas and big business mistake on my part that taught me a lot. He came to me and he said, listen, um, I want to start a company with you and I can do the tech side and you can we can be partners and I'd love to build this platform for you. And so it was a beautiful story. I helped him and then he helped me. And um, so now Wellness Plus is a place where I give all my secret sauce right it's it's really what I try to tell patients and educate them on in a one-on-one consult broadcast to a larger audience and um you know today after this I have a webinar where um or excuse me yeah webinar where I'm going to pick a live contestant and do a consult right there in front of everybody with her her him and then you know I have professional courses online mold Toxicities. I have um, a root cause quickie section where you guys can write in and ask all four of us doctors to research certain disorders and holistic solutions for you, and we will. I have a community forum that's not censored like Facebook that's really popping. It keeps me busy. And then finally, a store with vetted protocols and vetted um, products like Cellcore that you have access to, because in my, in my, um, membership, I'm able to kind of answer questions and help you understand how to use the products, right? So that's my goal is to teach people how to be their own best doctor.
0: Dr. just talk about how this transformation occurred for you. You went from being, you know, the, the, the kid who was sick, who had to deal with both physical and emotional trauma. You went off to medical school and had this sort of pot boiling around you. You took that ultimately to uh, a place where you had to, manage a practice in a very different way. And now you're trying to scale that. So I can see how this whole, this linear development has taken place. And and I guess on some level, what makes me really excited about where you are now is there are so many people that are sick from Lyme disease, right? And one of the things that, you know, I argued to someone recently was, um, was that um, you know, we've had folks tell us uh, on social media, if I can get to see Dr. Horowitz, I will get better, right? If I can get to see Dr. X, I can get better. And, you know, unfortunately, again, Dr. Horowitz is a brilliant man and he's doing great work, but, you know, his, in his entire career, he's seen 14,000 people. Yet 500,000 people are being diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease every single year, right? So the numbers just don't work out, right? There has to be some scaled solution. And it sounds to me that you've sort of evolved and transformed into you know, this person who was a practitioner who was not being um, you know, n- you know, her 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 the way God made her and the way her family raised her to um, to serve at a large scale just simply wasn't working for a lot of different reasons. And it seems like now this is sort of the way to do that where you can scale care and large numbers of people can get the care that they need from one of the best practitioners in the world. So talk to us about how that has been a a really important part of your transformation and evolution.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm really happy. And I think when you're really happy, you can serve better. And, and that's really what's been key for me is I've always been worried about other people and not taking care of myself properly. And so it's really important to put your oxygen mask on first before you help take care of other people. And so now that I'm not pinged in a fight or fight, I can teach other people how to see it because I've been through it.
1: All right, so let's
0: pause that for a second, because that's a really important point, right? Because you said, if I'm not happy, I can't serve others. But really isn't, isn't serving the way you were made to serve what will cause you to be happy?
2: Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I wasn't doing that before I was like caught in the woods and couldn't see the forest for the trees. Right. Um, Basically is what happened to me. And so it's really hard to stop that snowball that turns into an avalanche of being pinged in flight or fight. You know, it's almost like something bad has to happen for you to catch yourself. And that's or does it,
0: or or do you have to really learn how to read your body signals? Because look, happiness is a signal, sadness is a signal, right? And if you're sad or you're not feeling good and you continue to do it and you continue to do it and you continue to do it, ultimately it does get to a crisis, right? But it's the reading of your body signal, are you happy or you're sad, that's ultimately going to cause you to be where you're supposed to be or know you are where you're supposed to be, right?
2: Yeah. So there's an appropriate depression and appropriate anxiety for people. Sometimes it's trying to push you in the correct direction, 1000%. And so, you know, for me now, this is, this is working because I feel like I have bandwidth to actually help people and be the person I'm supposed to be. And really, I think. The healthcare of the future is going to be going in this direction. I see more and more practitioners trying to get out of doing one-on-ones because it is taxing. You do become a psychologist and a, a counselor and a, and a physician all at once, and there is a lot of burnout with it. So I think that people do need to learn how to listen to their bodies and and learn how to heal themselves. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who say, "Gosh, that's dangerous talk. That's dangerous what you're saying to people." But I don't think getting to know yourself and your body on a, on a deeper level is ever dangerous.
0: Well, but Dr. Just isn't it, isn't really the flaw with the industrial medical complex that we are handing our health over to you rather than taking responsibility for our own health. And when we move to these models, like the one that you're developing, and I think it's brilliant when we move to the models, like the, like the model that you're moving to essentially what you're saying is rich, your health is your health. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get to a point where you understand you and what you need. But in the end, I'm not taking responsibility for your health. And the truth is, it was always a lie when medical doctors are telling us that they could take responsibility for your health. Isn't that really the truth?
2: Yeah, it is. Because, you know, it's really what you do on a day-to-day basis that adds up over time that equals your personality and equals health. And doctors can't give that to you in a pill. It has to be more than that. And it has to be tailored and has to be thorough and it has to be thoughtful and it has to include your nine to five, what you eat, what you think, who you're hanging out with, what you're immersed in, what you're putting on your skin, what you're drinking, how you're sleeping. All of that is the best doctor there is.
0: And isn't that what caused you to have your transformation? Because when you were were not listening to your signals, when you're not living the life you were supposed to live, when you were not pursuing the service the way you were supposed to pursue it, you were miserable, you were sick, you didn't feel good, you were in fight or flight. All of that was happening to you and it wasn't until you finally got to the place where you were supposed to be that you were happy.
2: That's right, exactly. And it took a lot of falling on my face to get there.
0: <laughs> well, and, and we all fall on our face and, you know, and that's another part of I think the, the lessons that we, you know, that we have to learn here because you know, um, life is not about being happiness and having, having a departure for sadness. They're both giving us signals, right? They're both, life is both happiness and sadness, right? And Susan Cain, whose book is on the bestsellers list right now, uh, Bittersweet, really has sort of changed that mindset where we really understand that happiness and sadness are both a part of the journey and that we should celebrate both and understand what both are saying to us. And isn't that really what's happened with Dr. Jess?
2: I think so. Yeah. I've learned that lesson. I, one of my favorite things I said earlier, you know, don't push your trials or tribulations because that, that, that hard work you're doing, forging the diamond under pressure, right. That's what that, that's what that is for. And I, Will Smith says, you know, when you work out, the muscle has to be fatigued to exhaustion to grow. And that's what those times are for, for people.
0: And that's how you become anti-fragile, right? I mean, you start to grow from those pressures. And we all want to be anti-fragile. We all want to grow. We want that sadness and the signals that are coming from those experiences to help us to become stronger and become not just resilient, but anti-fragile.
2: Right. Absolutely. You want that. You want to be tough and kind.
0: So. Dr. Jess, I I would keep you all day. Matt has already tried to keep you all day, but you have uh, many other people that you're going to serve than just the folks in our our community. So I'm going to ask you the final question that we ask every one of our guests, and that is, if God forbid your mom well, I know went on a really powerful journey and thank you for sharing that piece of uh, your family's journey on your blog. I won't go into that in any specific detail but I urge people to read that. It was really beautifully uh, written. Um, but God forbid your mom came into your room right after this podcast and she had a tick biting her. What would you recommend that you do so she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: Absolutely, so there's a number of great things and a lot of ideas about what to do about this. But if you are lucky enough to find the tick on you or see a bullseye rash, that means your body is protecting you it's sitting off an immune signal and saying we're reacting to this and you're lucky enough to catch it and treat it early, which is a godsend, okay? It's a godsend. So look at it as a positive way when that happens, okay? You just spin that in your head because the thoughts you have are really important during this time of crisis. So I want you to first pull the tick straight off with tweezers straight out, okay? So nothing gets ex- ex- no parts are left inside the skin. And immediately you might have a little reaction, a little redness, a little central clearing. I want you to go make a binder pulstice. And you guys can even take like a little bit of On Guard from doTERRA, a little dot there. You can even put a little tincture from like biocide in there as well. CT minerals from CellCore, and then a binder pulstice. So I really like something like biotoxin binder from CellCore, but you can absolutely use zeolite like your bentonite clay to take a little bit of distilled water or CT minerals make a paste and put that on there, cover it with a bandaid and let it dry. You can repeat that a couple more times throughout the day, but that will suck those toxins from that wound that was just there. That's really active, not let them seep into the bloodstream, right? That's really important thing that you can do. I also really encourage people to take something orally. So if you have something like biocide and LSF, andrographis is great too. Something like andrographis or even some of Dr. Buhner's tinctures around. Those are wonderful to take orally. And you could take almost something like 2000 milligrams of andrographis right there as well and treat orally with herbs and they work really great just as good as doxycycline, but there's nothing wrong with going to get doxycycline from your doctor for an acute infection, especially I don't treat chronically just acute, but you guys really don't want to do the regular 100 milligrams that will make the spirochete turn into the L shape form and curl up and lower its metabolism, you won't kill it, you need 200 milligrams twice per day for probably three or four weeks and on top of that I always treat with herbals and binder pulstice on top of that so then you're pretty much covered. I'd love to hear what what you did though Rich.
0: Well, what I what I did and and uh, what I did was I was failed by the medical community and they didn't have an action plan, but we actually have a tick by blueprint that we'd love you to take a look at on our on our website. Uh, and we want you to we want you to go to our website because it'll be featuring you on our website very soon as well. So please go to tickbootcamp.com, look at our tick by blueprint, and give me your thoughts on what we've developed based on the crowdsourced information that we've uh, we've developed from this community.
2: I love it. I certainly will check it out. I may even, if you guys give me permission, I may even redevelop it for my uh, website app and give you guys pr- uh, credit. So, of course, that
0: would be, that would be wonderful. We, yeah. we would love you to share that with your community.
2: You guys check that. It's really important right now. It is tis the season for ticks right now.
0: <laughs> it is. So back to Jess, we can't thank you enough for spending time with the folks in the Tick Food Camp community. We will let you go to the other folks that you're serving in your community. But again, you are an absolute blessing and a, and a pleasure to interview.
2: You guys are great. Thanks for having
0: me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp with our guest, Dr. Jess Pietros. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Jess, please visit her Instagram page at drjessmd. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a tick by blueprint. It has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We're ready to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us similar to the improvements that Dr. Jess had offered. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp Podcast. And finally, we thank you, the folks in our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.